Hello and welcome to Emerge, Evolve, Lead, a podcast for people in recovery from addiction who want to be better leaders. I got clean and sober when I was 24, and then I started my corporate career. After several decades, I left that job and created Emerge Leadership Academy, where I train leaders and coach people in recovery who are ready to step up in their career. My name is Maureen Rosgem, and I'll be your host. Hello, and welcome back to Emerge, Evolve, Lead podcast. My guest today is Lisa Waldman, a licensed clinical addiction specialist, life coach, and author. Lisa has been sober for over 30 years now and helps people on the daily to transform their lives. I'm really excited to hear her story. Hi, Lisa. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. It's my honor and pleasure to be here. I'm excited. Me too, me too. First, before we get to your story, would you please share a little bit about your your life, your home life and what you do for a living and and your, it's, let's start with your sobriety date and hobbies, things like that. Sure. So, my sobriety date is January 2nd, 1991, which still blows my mind. Uh, I'm actually from your neck of the woods, originally from Providence, Rhode Island, and oh. now living in North Carolina. I have an amazing day job that I do full time working as a mental health uh, crisis hotline worker. Mm. And then I also have just started to branch out and do life coaching as well. I am happily married uh, 17 years to my wife, Martha, who is also in recovery. So that's just awesome. That's just fantastic. Yep. Uh, we have one fur baby, our baby girl cat named Panther, and I love hiking, anything outdoors. I'm a lover of the 80s music, love dancing. Uh, photography is my passion, and so I will often share my pictures on my Facebook page and put up a gift of the day for people just to inspire because I just love taking pictures and loving life. That's awesome. And then they get to see your perspective on the world. Yeah, yeah. You know, my husband and I, we ride motorcycles. And well, we we have two wheelers, but we also have a trike and we have toured across the country. But he loves photography. He got interested in it. And then after a while, I just got the camera on my you know shoulders and and I would take pictures as we're riding across the country of barns. And so he has a Facebook um, blog, personal blog of bar called Barns Along the Way. So if you like barns and you wanna see some really cool barns, go there. He's got like 26,000 followers now, but the photography is so fun and taking 50 miles an hour going by on a motorcycle. <laughs> know how they turn out so good but cameras are absolutely amazing these days yeah i will definitely check that out that sounds like a lot of fun and and what i love about that is it also gives me different perspective so whether it's a close-up or it's a panoramic so close in or far away it also gives me different views and different perspectives on things so that's a lot of fun yeah Absolutely. Let's go get into your story a little. Uh, why don't you share a little bit about your life before adulthood? How, you know, how was it growing up in your family and what happened? How did you begin drinking? What happened? And, you know, in about five or 10 minutes or, or less and explain what happened. How'd you figure out you were an alcoholic and get sober? 
so I, I'm the youngest of four. I have three older brothers. And so I started drinking relatively early just because mom and dad would go away. One of the boys would have a party and it was there. And I also started oh, wonderful yeah. role models. <laughs> yeah, outstanding. And and it was a two for one special because I also started gambling. Early. Oh, really? Uh, one, one of my brothers was doing a sports card betting. You would bet on the football games with the spreads. And so it was just easy access to stuff. And so I was on my way. And then when I turned 13, just after my bat mitzvah, my grandfather passed away. And I ended up in temple on Friday nights instead of being down at the river drinking where everybody drank in my hometown. And so that curtailed things until I got to college with the drinking. I was still gambling, playing cards for money during that time, but the drinking really took off when I got to college. Went to a big party school. I was, I'm curious to know, cause I'm not a gambler. In fact, I cannot even watch gambling movies. I must've been a gambler in a past life because it's so, it freaks me out giving money away or like losing money like it free it's not a rush for me at all so can you um share a little bit more about what was so compelling about it for you and what did it do for you i was good at it oh so you were a winner <laughs> you were a winner i won more than i lost oh, most okay. of the time that could get addicting and there was just something about that rush maureen that even the alcohol didn't, it wasn't the same. For me, it was far more intense. There's a double-edged sword with it. So if you win, it's not enough, right? You want more. And if you lose, there's this thought process of I'll get it back next time. Yeah. Yeah. So it just keeps you going. And it was fun, right? So I, I never got into trouble with it. And how did you make money? To, I mean, like even in the beginning at 13, were you babysitting and you used the babysitting money? Like, how did you even have money to gamble with? I probably from allowance, I'm going to guess if I can remember right. And then I started working under the table um, at a family fruit store when I was relatively young and then was working by 16 you know, with part-time jobs and stuff. Okay. You figure out a way, just like any addict. <laughs> you find the money, you save it, and you make more of it. Or That's the, the whole goal. I get yeah. it. Okay, okay. So let's get back to your story. So then you went to a real big party college. Is that what happened? It was back in the day. Yes. Joined, everything was. And joined a sorority, mm. which meant easy access to the fraternity parties. And so... For the first two years, it was weekend warrior Thursday night through Sunday night. And so I just drank. And I ended up sophomore year on academic probation mm. and said, hmm, this isn't going so well. <laughs> and so I started to cut back. But then the other thing I did was I became a peer educator so I could get paid to go talk to the dorms and the fraternities and the sororities 
about not drinking too much. About the perils of drinking. Yes. <laughs> okay, so you got some education. And did it help? Well, I wasn't getting educated from me. I was going to them and talking to them about it, and I was getting paid for it. So it was a do as I say, not as I do. Okay. So in other words, you didn't quit drinking. I cut back on the drinking. So I, I, there was a part of me that realized if I wanted to stay in school, that I couldn't drink the way that I was drinking and I had to study some more. So I started cutting back and it would be, and I was a binge drinker and a blackout drinker. So I never drank daily, even to the end. I never drank daily, but when I did drink, I made up for lost time. Let's put it gotcha. that way. Yeah. You lost and control. So, yeah. And so, and I wanted to go to graduate school. And so you need a certain GPA to be able to get in and to be able to do that. And so I also, by senior year, I started to drink out of state. So I had friends who lived in Florida and I would go down once or twice a year and just binge drink for however long I was there. Gotcha. And then senior year, I did my internship right before I graduated at a detox. Huh. So I got clear that this was my path I wanted to, to be really? in the field. Yeah. And so, you know, again, I was a functional alcoholic in school. I never had any of what I considered to be the major consequences. And I drank like everybody else around me. So there was nothing that looked any different. And then I went to work at the detox and these people were so much worse than me. Oh, right. Right. I couldn't possibly. I couldn't I was, be like them. No, absolutely not. And so I continued to, sometimes I would go six months. Sometimes it was nine months without drinking. I didn't miss it. I didn't have the cravings, not anything that, that people talk about in, in the meetings. Um, but like I said, when I drank, I made up for lost time. And my last drunk was, I went skiing with a bunch of friends. We rented a house up in Vermont. I don't ski. We went that day to the slopes. It was icy and I was afraid to go out. So I figured it would be safer to stay in the bar and drink <laughs> while my friends all went skiing. Mm -hmm. And so I did that. And I drank and I drank and I drank and I don't know how many hours later they came back and we went back to the house and I continued to drink. And I think it was, I don't know, 13, 14 hours later, um, blacked out, passed out, believed that I should have died that night, had mm. alcohol poisoning, I'm sure, woke up the next day, drove home from Vermont, uh, puked my guts out. And that was it. Like I truly believed that I should have been dead and that I couldn't, I couldn't drink anymore. So was that January 1st? And so is that why January 2nd is your date? Yeah. So even though I never drank anything on New Year's Day, I was still so very drunk oh, that day with it still seep seeping out of me. Yeah. Um, and again, I was completely functional. I think I drove drunk once during that time in college, but other than that, all of the yets that people talk about in the meetings, I have all of those in front of me if I pick up again. 
You know, I really do believe that that education does have a lot because I had, we call this a high bottom, right? Mm -hmm. So I had a high bottom too. And I, you know, I would drink all night and then get up and go to work every day. So I was functioning. I, you know, I, I hadn't lost my license. I could drive if I, after drinking two six packs of beer, if throwing a few shots, no, I couldn't drive, but I could, you know, I was, I was very functional. I had a high tolerance. I could drink a lot. Right. And I never got, you know, there's a lot of things that didn't happen to me. I didn't get fired from my jobs and I didn't do things like that. I wasn't, I didn't have the shakes in the morning and things, but in the end, I had gone for a while to alcohol, to Alateen because my father mm-hmm. was an alcoholic and I went to Al-Anon and then after Al-Anon, I had the bottle under the seat of the car and would drive right to the bar drinking all the way. But here's the thing. Um, it taught me that it doesn't get any better. It does not get better. It only gets worse. My tolerance was going to go down. I wasn't going to always have this kind of tolerance. I, there was so many yets. I knew they could happen to me. And I think it, it scared me to hit my bottom a lot sooner. Does that make sense? So it sounds perfect. like that's what happened to you. Yeah. Yeah, absolute perfect sense. And I also, I knew too much. Yeah, yeah. That's so, what I say too. I knew too much. <laughs> so I stopped drinking, but I didn't get to meetings for about two, I would say two and a half years. I was a dry drunk. I was in graduate school full time. I was working full time, right? Doing outpatient counseling. And I was, and I was a nutter. I mean, I was just emotionally, I was not sober at all. And so it took me a bit to get to meetings. And I'll never forget my first meeting. I went in and I compared going, hmm, I'm not really sure that I belong here. And I really went because I got diagnosed with attention deficit. Oh. And I, and I, and I knew and a learning disability in graduate school, and I knew that AA taught people how to manage their addiction. And so I said, oh, well, maybe you can help me manage my ADD. Hmm. And so I came in that way. But my second meeting, they talked about surrender. And I was like, oh my God, that is me. And that changed everything. Your mindset shifted. Yeah. Yes. And you're like, you saw yourself in somebody that must have been sharing that day. Yeah. Surrender is an interesting concept too. It's like you don't have any power until you finally let it all go. And so what a concept, right? So they they talked about giving up the big C, which was control for the little C, which was coping skills. Oh, huh. Okay. Tell me more. So it was just that I thought that I had control over all of it, right? And I never got into doing other substances because I was afraid I couldn't control it and somehow having the bed spins seemed like I was in control, right? So there's some faulty logic that was definitely going on there. Indeed. And, and so being able to, to not have to be in control or the illusion 
right? It was really the illusion of control that I could trade that in to learn how to manage my life. It wasn't just the addiction, but I could use those tools in every aspect of my life to get better. It was just like, wow. So then you, it's a, it, I w- I'm guessing that after this two year or whatever it was period of time, that's when you really got into recovery. When you started to look at yourself and work on yourself, were you through done with graduate school at that time? I was done with graduate school okay. and I was working in outpatient and I figured out relatively quickly, I had to take a step back from doing direct service and take care of my own mess. Good for them or you for, you know, helping you to see that. Yeah. Too many times that, you know, that whole physician heal thyself, you know, you, you have a doctor who's sick as anything and, and help trying to help other people. You got to start with you first. Yeah. And it's a great place to hide. Right. And so right. I figured, I figured that out and said, okay. And so I ended up going into employee assistance where I was still in the field but I was not doing direct service per se anymore. And I feel like that's really when my recovery started in terms of really working a program and getting better and cleaning my house. Yeah, good. And how? where was the gambling around all of this? Were you still doing that on the side or did that yes. get left behind too? So funny you should ask that. So Foxwood opens and I was there the second weekend it opened, of course, because, hey, you know, and so that's what you with, do. Right. So I went down with my friends and I mentioned it to somebody at a meeting and they said to me, well, isn't that kind of like relapsing? Mm-hmm. And I distinctly remember this surge of anger coming up through my body. And wanting to say to them, F you. Mind your own effing business. Right? <laughs> yep. And I walked out of the meeting and I do believe it was but the grace of God, Maureen, that I didn't walk away because I was so close oh. because somebody called me on it. I was so close to saying F this, I don't need this. And I believe it was my higher power that sort of grabbed me by the scruff of the neck and said, get back here. You've got work to do. And so that was the last time that I gambled. And I went to a couple of GA meetings, but found that I had the most recovery in the meetings because of what I was learning in AA and how long I had been in AA by the time that that had happened. And I said, you know what, this isn't, this isn't good for me to sort of be the most sober person here. That's dangerous for me. And oh. I did it in AA and I just never, I don't gamble to this day. I mean, I'm, I'm sober from, from everything. Yeah. And that probably opened up other avenues uh, for you to have to take a look at, right? Because when we, when we, you know, take the plug out of the jug or how we, and put it into something else, a lot of people do that. We put it into food or sugar or uh, shopping or sex or, you know, uh, the gambling, you know, those kinds of things. And when you take it away from the two things that were really, those, that was your, like one of your drugs of choice. Yes. Um, 
it can it can leave a hole there and it's and that's the work right filling that hole or really addressing the pain of what we were trying to escape by doing those things yeah um all right and so then you get into recovery and you're starting a career and it's all happening at the same time with it sounds like uh with your own recovery uh, process. So tell me, it, did that being in that career of helping other people deal with their issues of alcoholism and drug addiction, um, did that help keep you sober? It absolutely has. I mean, so parallel of doing my own work and cleaning house um, to this day, I mean, I'm still in it every single day. And so my job now working crisis hotline I probably get no less than three to five calls every single day of people seeking detox. And so it keeps it right up front and personal for me that there is no, there is no going back. You know, so, so have you barely been doing that for, for like 25 years or something now or, or yeah, it's no? Been more, yeah, wow. I have not, not in this particular job. I mean, I've worked in the prisons, I've worked in the school system, I've worked inpatient, outpatient, employee assistant. So I've had some amazing opportunities within the field. But yeah, I've been in the field and I've been licensed probably since, I think certified since 91, licensed since 95, 96 maybe. Okay. Yeah. Wow. Talk, so talk to me a little bit about um, burnout. Have you ever, I've heard over and over again, that people who get in, especially counseling, um, doing you know, doing that kind of counseling work, um, usually there's a, a shelf life of about ten years before you just get burnt out and you need something else or something different. My husband was a substance abuse counselor for fifteen years, and I think he lasted longer than most. So you've been in for long, a lot longer than that. Has some of your roles been in administration, or no? It's really been working directly with people. And if so, how have you maintained that all these years of not getting burnt out? Yeah, great question. So I've had a couple of small stints of middle management, and decided it was not for me because you're sort of stuck between a rock and a hard place. You've got upper administration telling you what to do and you've got clients and residents and patients telling you what to do. And so that was a no win. So yeah. I sort of figured out that was not where I wanted to be. Um, like I said, I've had some great opportunities. And so I think that it's been probably about five or six years since the last time that I was in direct service i can't imagine being 10 or 15 years doing that and the job that i have now it is not direct service it is in that i'm getting people connected with resources okay and connected with emergency services immediately so that part's hard and rewarding that i can immediately get people connected if they're calling and wanting help um but that's it in terms of i'm not doing counseling and even with the life coaching right so that is uh goal focused that is present oriented it's not diving into the feelings of the past so i love that and so that's i'm not in i'm not in a position that i think that your husband would was in and a lot of people get into if they are in and stay in direct service yeah you know there's this whole 
I, I don't even know what the statistics are now. I think with COVID, it's just been crazy how much, um, how much it's risen to the f surface that mental health, there's a mental health crisis, as well as people, you know, something incredible like um, liquor store sales went up by 450% in the first three months of COVID. But then again, all the bars shut down. Right. So they sort of there had to be somewhere. And we said of essential services, all essential services are being um, maintained. And and alcohol is an essential service because I, I couldn't believe that either. <laughs> like, really? Package stores? Come on. Oh, the fact that the statistics say that only like one in 30 people actually stay sober that get to go into a treatment facility come out mm -hmm. and stay sober and i you know i have a whole bunch of people in my life that have been sober for a long long time and we are a tight-knit close community there's a lot of you know a, a bunch of us a dozen or so and and it's really wonderful to not hear about the you know are we the the oddity? Are we the not the norm? And yet I meet people every single day now with long-term sobriety. And I think a lot of us are hiding. A lot of us are hiding behind that past anonymity thing, right? We're supposed to stay anonymous, but also um, it's time to step out, right? It's time to come out of the closet and say, no, I made it. I'm still sober. I didn't need to go back out there drinking. Yeah, I absolutely agree with that. And I've never been closeted about my recovery since I got sober. I've always been out and, and proud about it. And um, I think that the principles of AA can help lots of people. And I also believe for me, my path was never just about AA. My spiritual path has been about all kinds of different holistic things in addition to. And so I just believe that there's not one right way to do this. I believe that AA does not work for everybody, even though I've never gone to a smart recovery meeting. I've sent lots of people to smart recovery. Uh, their website has got some fantastic resources on it. I've heard that. Yeah. Yeah. And so I, I just think that there's not you have to figure out your way that's going to make sense and that's going to work for you at the end of the day. But I mean, in the in the big scheme of things, you know, sending people to different places for recovery is great because you can help them in the moment, like you said, or doing that coaching that's in the moment, like present kind of time. But help trying to help people and then just watching them go back out over and over again, that's where the burnout comes in. And even in during COVID, I have had some friends, they call it empathy fatigue. Mm -hmm. I am it's so hard to watch people just stay in pain and be in pain and suffering all the time. But I do also believe that as we continue to grow and expand into some of these other modalities and looking at all of the different ways that we can heal our mind, body and soul, that there is a lot of ways there is a lot of AA is not the be you know all end all, but it's all act, uh, maintained of, of how you maintain your spiritual conditioning, and how you stay connected with other people. I think it's the people that get disconnected somehow that end up going on the pity party and 
feeling like why it's not even worth it. They get so caught up in their loneliness. Do you agree? Yeah, I definitely think that that's one of both of those key factors, the connection and the spirituality. Um, and one of the things that ended up happening for me this year with starting the coaching with that was uh, I ended up writing a book about resources, right? So it was a little bit about my story, but then I said, I've got all this knowledge in my head from both my own path and also helping people over the years. I'm going to write a book about this. And so it predominantly has resources for pain, for trauma, for anxiety, and for addiction in it. Perfect. What's the and name of this book? Tell me more it, about it. Yeah. So it's called Health Reboot, Resources for Pain, Trauma, Anxiety, and Addiction. And you can get to it through my website at chilloutcoaching.com. And so after I did that, Maureen, I said, you know what? People in AA struggle with the spirituality part all the time. And so I ended up writing another book that was more like a journaling queries and questions called Spirituality Reboot, Questions for Growth and Clarity. And then four other books came out of that same questions for growth and clarity on different topics. Yeah, it, it was it was exciting. It was just it was time for me. It was time for this information to come out to help other people in that there's no right way to do this. And for me, the more tools I have in my toolbox, because I don't know when I'm going to need what exactly. the better. Right. Yeah, I like it. Health reboot and spirituality reboot. Thank you. Thank you. So, um, yeah, so I just uh, that's kind of where I am now. I'm starting to do some of the podcasts. I want to eventually start doing some courses, some live courses and some some digital courses. Um, so that's kind of my plan. And then maybe next year, maybe do my own podcast. Oh, yeah. It's so much fun. I've been doing it since, gosh, coming up. I started in November, so coming up on a year now. And it, it really is fun. It's great. You meet so many wonderful people. And during COVID, since all my classes were canceled, I started yeah. Recovery at Work, which is a, a course. It's an eight module course where uh, it will get you to the next level of where you want to be in your career. So it is really a fun, fun journey. So if you were, um, as we wrap up here, uh, tell me if you were to give advice to somebody who was uh, just had done the deep work on themselves and were getting ready to step up into leadership, maybe a, as a coach or as a, a speaker or, you know, wanted to share their gifts. What is some advice that you would give them? Also a great question. I think two things. One is I truly believe that we all have our answers inside of us. Sometimes we just need a little bit of help finding them. Sometimes we need to be reminded of them because it's stuff we got away from when we started drinking or using. So that would be one is to trust that you have the answers in you and do what you need to, to get to them or ask for help if you don't know what to do with that. And the second one goes hand in hand is to remain teachable. It's sort of like the opposite, isn't it? Know that you have all the answers, but be open to what people can teach you. <laughs> I love it because it, it, it's so true. But I, I think 
you know, I know for me that when I get into the I got this mode, I'm in trouble, right? So child's eyes, looking at things through wonder and excitement and what can I get from this? I think it becomes harder sometimes the more sober you are. Mm -hmm. And so I would say just do whatever you have to do to, to, to remain teachable and to take in all information. Even if you think you know it, pretend like you don't. Yeah. And go explore. Yeah. And be humble because you don't know everything. No, you don't. I've been sober for 36 years and some days I feel like, oh, I have so much to give. And other days I'm like, holy crap, what am I doing? I need help. (laughs) (laughs) But that's because I am open to learning and learning is one of my highest... values and so we love it this whole life learn lifelong learning attitude is the really the only only mindset to have all right so you told you said it earlier but i want you to say it again if people wanted to reach you lisa where where can they go they can go to chilloutcoaching.com i love it chill out coaching yeah because chilling out will also get you into uh, relaxation and joy yeah it's a good thing all right. Is there anything else you want to say before we end? Thank you for having me. This has been this has been wonderful. Thank you very much for coming on today. It was so wonderful to meet you. If you like this podcast, please subscribe, leave a review, and share it with your friends. You can visit us at EmergeLeadershipAcademy.com to take the quiz to find out what animal best represents your leadership style. And until next week, remember, you have so many leadership skills that you learned in recovery. Stop hiding because your contribution matters.